We are, if you are visiting with us tonight, coming to the end of our study of the book of Numbers, and we have been going through what the children of Israel experienced in the wilderness as they were coming out of Egypt and then going to the promised land. Now, we're going to get in Numbers tonight, but let's begin in Deuteronomy. I want to just show you this. In fact, earlier today, I just knew that this was going to be our last sermon from the book of Numbers, and we're going to end the wilderness tonight. And maybe we will, but there are two other topics that perhaps in the next couple of weeks we might could deal with. One is talking about how some of those tribes, when they got to the border of the promised land, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they looked at where they were there on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and they said to Moses, Moses, we know this is not the promised land, but this is good enough. Could we stay here? And so they did. And I'd like to preach a sermon from that and talk about the land of good enough, because sometimes in life, we're not where God wants us to be in our own relationship with Him and maybe in our service of Him, but we just say, well, it's good enough. And we just kind of settle short of what God has for us. So maybe that'd be a good sermon. And then one more uh, on the cities of refuge. You know, they had these six cities out there in the desert. And if you had committed a crime, killed somebody, for example, accidentally, you could go and find refuge in one of those cities. And we know that those cities are an Old Testament picture of Jesus and how we run to him. He is our city of refuge. So we may deal with those, maybe not. But anyway, tonight we're thinking about the wilderness and what we can learn. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 1, I've shown you this verse before, but I want you to see it again tonight. In verse number 2, the Scripture says, It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir, to Kadesh Barnea. So it should have taken 11 days to go from Egypt to Israel, an 11-day walk, less than two weeks. But look in verse 3. Now it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of that month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel. So this is the 40th year now after they had left Egypt, and now they're about to go into the promised land. And so for these 40 years, there they've been, in the wilderness, in the desert, on their way to the promised land, but not making very much progress. And tonight we're thinking about what's, what, what happens to us in the wilderness? What happened to them in the wilderness? Maybe tonight you say, John, I am in the wilderness and I've been listening to this series for the last few weeks and I'm in one of those places in my life where things are tough and I don't seem to be uh, making much progress. God seems distant. Life seems blah. It's just the same old, same old day after day after day after day. Nothing new, nothing fresh, nothing exciting. Same old, same old. And sometimes we get in the wilderness experience. Now, tonight, what I want to do is mention three things that happened to us in the wilderness. And I'm going to show you right out of the Bible how this happened to the children of Israel. And it's interesting today, as I've prepared this and thought about my own life, I thought, well, you know, this has been true of me too. And it's true of you. If you tonight say, I feel like I'm in a wilderness season. I'm not in Canaan. I'm not in experiencing the abundant life 
that I want to experience, and maybe you would say that you have experienced. You're just kind of in a dry place right now spiritually. It happens to all of us, and tonight we're thinking specifically about what are some of the things that are going on behind the scenes during those wilderness experiences and seasons of life. And the first thing I would say is this. In the wilderness, Satan wants to destroy you. Now, we don't think much about that. We don't think much about Satan and what his role might be in our wilderness experience, but many times he is playing a very active role, and one of the things that the devil wants to do when you are dry, when you're tired, when you're weary, when you've lost your vision, your direction, your drive, your excitement, your enthusiasm, when the Maybe it's worse than that. Maybe a situation or a circumstance has happened in your life and you're beginning to wonder, where is God? If God loved me, if God were really good, why would God be allowing this into my life? And Satan, at a time like that, remember what the Scripture said, he goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he always pounces on us when we are down. He gets us there. Now, let's go back to Numbers, chapter number 22, and let's see how the devil tried to destroy the Israelites as they were in the wilderness. Numbers, chapter 22, beginning in verse number 1. Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now, Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. And so word had gotten out that in the wilderness, God is giving the Israelites victory over some of the opponents that they're facing. And the Moabites are thinking, what will they do to us? Verse 4. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. So the king of Moab is a man named Balak. Then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him saying, look, a people have come from Egypt. A people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. And so the king of Moab is contacting Balaam, and we're going to see that Balaam was a prophet, but he was not a prophet of God. He was a pagan prophet. He was a false prophet prophet. And so Balak is sending for Balaam, hoping that Balaam would pronounce a curse on the Israelites so that their progress would be thwarted, and for all practical purposes, they would be destroyed there in the wilderness. Look in verse 6. We read, we read this. Therefore, Balak says, please come at once. Curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hand, and they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak and said to him, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam. Now, God, this is an interesting thing throughout this story. God is speaking to a false prophet. Balaam, as we will see, was not a child of God. He was not a believer. 
He was a pagan prophet. And yet God can speak to whoever he wants to. And here he speaks to Balaam and said, who are these men who are with you? So Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, has sent to me saying, look, a people has come out of Egypt and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. And so, What I want us to see here at the beginning is that Satan is now using Balak and wanting to use Balaam to pronounce a curse on the people of God and to try to thwart their progress. And so he's trying to cause all kinds of problems. Now, I want to just develop this whole idea of Balaam. I don't want to spend too much time on him tonight, but we know from a passage in the New Testament book of Jude uh, leads us to understand that he was a false prophet. But I want us to see some other verses tonight. In chapter 22, look in verse uh, 38, because what's interesting about Balaam is that even though he was a false prophet, many of the things that he said were actually right and they were actually true because God was telling him what to do. So in chapter 22, verse 38, Balaam said to Balak, look, I have come to you. Now, have I any power at all to say anything? And then Balaam says this, the word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. And then in chapter 23 and in verse 26, at the very end of the verse, Balaam said the same thing. All that the Lord speaks, that I must do. And then in chapter 23 and verse 19, this is actually one of the greatest quotes in the, uh, in the Old Testament. But it's coming from a false prophet. But, but it's true. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make good? And then one other verse, chapter 24 and verse 13, similar to what we looked at earlier, Balaam said, Uh, what the Lord says to me, that I must speak. So you read this story about Balak and Balaam. And for much of the story, it looks like Balaam is actually doing the right thing. He's saying to Balak, I can't bless whom God has cursed. I can only say what God tells me to say. God is not a man that he should lie. And yet we know as we read more passages in the Bible that Balaam was a false prophet. Now, interestingly, in chapter 22, let's look at three verses here. Balaam refers to God as the Lord. He refers to God by God's covenant name in chapter, in chapter 22, look in verse number 13. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, go back to your land. For the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. So he refers to God as the Lord, the covenant name. Verse 23, verse 18, rather, verse 18. Then Balak answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord, my God. He now calls him the Lord, my God. And again in verse 19, he says, Therefore, please, you stay with me here tonight that I may know what the Lord will say to me. So he's referring to God by God's covenant name, Lord. But when the Bible refers 
to God in relation to Balaam, it doesn't use the name uh, uh, Lord. It uses the name God. Now, this, this gets interesting to me. In chapter 22, for example, look in verse 9. Then God came to Balaam. And so he's identified here not by the covenant name, but by the, the other name. And in verse 12, and God said to Balaam. And in verse 20, and God came to Balaam. And so Balaam, even though he appears to be a true messenger of God, he's not. He used sorcery, divination. We would call it witchcraft. He was a pagan and a false prophet. And if you'll turn to chapter 31, I'll show you another verse that helps us to know that, uh, that Balaam was, uh, was not one of God's prophets. In chapter 31, in verse 15, Moses said to them, Have you kept all the women alive? Talking about some bad things that had happened here. And then Moses said this, Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the generation of the Lord. And so Balaam was involved in using these women to entice the Israelite men. And so Balaam was not a false prophet. One other verse, and then I'll get off of Balaam. I just, I'm, I'm just making this point tonight because we're not going to read all three chapters of this passage. But if you do read it, you're going to think, well, now what this Balaam? Well, look in chapter 24 and verse 1. Now, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go, as at other times, to seek to use sorcery or divination, enchantments, witchcraft, but he set his face toward the wilderness. So what I'm saying here is that Satan had a prophet named Balaam, and Balaam knew how to be politically correct, and he knew what to say in the right setting to make the people of God think that he was one of them. And don't we see that in the day in which we live? Sometimes we see people, and you listen to them, and you think, well, this is a person of God. They're talking about God. They're mentioning the name of God. And yet, as I'm looking more deeply at this person and what this person is doing and trying to lead in, I don't see anything here that has to do with God. And it brings me to make this point tonight. As Christians, we need to be discerning. We need to be wise, and we need to not be naive. And I'm afraid many times as Christians, one of our greatest weaknesses is our naivety. We are naive. We are easy to fool. Jesus called us sheep, and when he called us sheep, he was not paying us a compliment because sheep are not known for their intelligence. They're known for being misled. And I feel like many times, I was watching some TV show the other night, and they had a commercial come on. And the commercial was about a lawsuit. And as far as I know, the lawsuit was completely, uh, it was a, perhaps, let's just say it was a legitimate lawsuit. It's a suit that if you've been exposed to this, you know, you can, you can, you can sue this. You're not even suing the company. You're just trying to get damages back for the physical. So I don't know if the, if the lawsuit is legitimate or not. But let's just say like that it is legitimate. But the, at the end of the lawsuit, an American flag comes across the TV, and then a cross comes across the TV. And I'm thinking, now why did they do that? Why did they, at the end of the lawsuit, why do they have an American flag? You say, well, it's patriotic, and so we get that. Okay, well then why did they have a cross? What, what is the connection between the cross and the lawsuit? 
Well, I don't think you have to be a genius to figure out that the people who put the commercial together know that if they'll put a cross on the commercial, the Christians will say, well, this must be right because after all, it has a cross on it. And I saw another commercial. A man was selling some form of insurance, and the insurance seemed to be good. But as the camera backed away from the man as he's selling his insurance, you see a a, a church, a small country church in the background. And I'm thinking, well, I'm all for church. I've devoted my life to the church. I live in the church practically. But what does the church have to do with this insurance policy? Well, it doesn't have anything to do with it. But the people who made the policy and are trying to sell the insurance know if we can put a church in the background, if we can put a cross here, if we can put an American flag across it and, and, and make everybody think, well, it's, this is the patriotic thing to do, that there are millions of people who buy into that and say, this must be legitimate. There's a church. There's a cross. There's an American flag. And what I'm saying is with Balaam, it was a similar situation. He's saying so much of the right thing that when you read his story in Scripture, you say, well, this must be a true prophet of God. But as you trace him back and as you read what other passages in the Bible are saying about him, you're saying, no, this is not a true prophet of God. He is a pagan. He is an infidel. He is a false prophet. And yet, he sounds like a real prophet. He sounds like the real deal. And it is Satan going about like a roaring lion. But remember this, as he goes about like a roaring lion, he doesn't look like a roaring lion. He looks like an angel of light. If he looked like a roaring lion, we would all know it's the devil. If he disguised himself as an angel of light, we think he might be telling us something that is in our own best interest and for our good. And I'm saying to you tonight, in the wilderness, one of the things that the devil wants to do is to destroy your life. And one of the ways that he will destroy your life is that he will use people and things who sound right who seem logical, who look good, and they're advising you to do something that is completely contrary to the teaching of Scripture, completely the opposite of the ways of God. And what is the devil trying to do? He's trying to defeat you. He is trying to destroy you. One of the things I'm going to say at the end, and I know you wish we were there now, right? Amen. You wish, but we're not there yet. One of the things I'm going to say at the end is this. In the desert seasons of life, you have two options. You can give up or you can look up. Now remember that, and I'm going to say it again. But the devil wants you to give up, and the devil wants you to go in another direction, and one of the ways he will entice you to do that is by people giving you advice that sounds good, sounds logical, it makes sense. The only problem is their advice doesn't match what God's will for your life is. So you still listen, say amen. I want to make that point. Now, the second thing that happens in the wilderness, while Satan is trying to destroy us and get us to give up and quit and throw in the towel and go down some different road and something like that, in the wilderness, God wants to develop you. Now, think about that. The devil wants to, destroy, to deceive you and to destroy you. God wants to develop you, to develop your faith and to develop your character. Now, in your outline tonight, you see that I've mentioned several things. I'll give you the words. You can fill in the blank if you would like. You say, well, John, how is God developing my character, my character and my faith during this wilderness experience that I'm in right now? Well, one of the ways that he wants to do that is through his presence. Many times in these desert seasons of life, what we want is out of the situation that we're in. And what we need to remember is there's something even more important 
than getting out of our situation, and that is discovering the presence of God right there in the midst of our situation. Let me read this verse to you, Exodus 33 and verse 14. God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. I want to say to the person tonight, because I can I look it back at times in my life just like you do with you in your own life. And I look at sometimes in my life when I was in a real wilderness and I didn't know where God was and I didn't know why this is happening and I didn't know what the future was going to be and I didn't know what I was supposed to do. And if in some of those seasons of my life I could have just, and I did, I did have this. I had many people saying this to me, pastors, family, books. Pre, but one of the things that has helped me the most in these type seasons has been to remind myself that in the desert, when we feel alone and nothing makes sense, we're not alone, that God is right there with us. And tonight, I want to say that to somebody, because for somebody tonight, that's going to mean more than it does to somebody else. Because somebody else might not be in the desert and you just came to church tonight because it's the right thing to do. But somebody tonight might be on the ropes. And the devil might be deceiving you and convincing you that if you'll throw in the towel and go another way, that that might be your best move. And it looks logical and it sounds right. And I'm saying to you tonight on the authority of God's word, it is never right to throw in the towel. And it is certainly never right to go away opposite from what God would have you to go. And one of the things we need to remember is the presence of God right here in our life. I'll tell you something else that helps me, it has helped me in my wilderness times, is God helps me through his provision the way he meets our needs. And we see this in the children of Israel so many different ways. We see, for example, they came to the Red Sea, and they came, really we would say they were at a dead-end road in their life. The Egyptian army was coming behind them. They couldn't go back. The Red Sea was in front of them. They couldn't swim across. They were stuck. And maybe tonight somebody feels like, well, that's kind of where I feel. I feel stuck. I feel like I don't have a good move on the table. What did God do? He parted the Red Sea and he made a way where there seems to be no way. How many of us here tonight have seen God do that in our own lives? We come to our own Red Sea, can't go back and we can't go forward, and yet God makes a way so that we can go forward. I read a psalm the other day, and in the psalm it said, God, your way is in the sanctuary and your way was in the sea but your footprints were not seen. And so I want to say to you tonight, when you get in a situation like that, God knows how to make a way for you where there seems to be no way. Now, in Numbers chapter 22, let's look at, we wouldn't want to miss this part of the story. One of the things that I have experienced in my life, and I'm sure you have too, is that out there in those wilderness seasons of life, we see God do supernatural things. God... I've always felt like this. The place of attack is the place not only of protection, but it is the place of supernatural provision. I've seen this here in our church through the years. I've seen times here where there was an attack. And you thought, man, this is, this is an attack. This is a satanic attack. It doesn't, maybe, it doesn't look like a roaring lion. It doesn't, no, but this is a satanic attack. Every time I've ever seen that happen, I have seen that the place of attack is the place of protection, but it is also the place 
of provision, of supernatural provision. God will do extraordinary things at times when we feel like we have come under attack. Now, in chapter 22 and verse 22, this is the most familiar part of the story. Let's just read a few verses here and and kind of reacquaint ourselves with this. Then God's anger was aroused against Balaam because he went. Now, God had told him he could go, but God still got angry with him because his motives weren't right. Balaam was just doing it all to make money. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. And Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back onto the road. And so the donkey, seeing this angel of the Lord ahead of her, and so the donkey's trying to prevent running into the angel, and, but Balaam can't see that. Verse 24, then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then, now here it is, God doing something supernatural. Verse 28, then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? So here we have a donkey talking. Here we have God talking through a donkey. Say, John, we see this happen every time you preach that God is talking through a donkey. Well, that's what's happening here. God's speaking through this donkey. And in verse 29, and Balaam said to the donkey. Now, this to me is just as much a miracle as now Balaam's talking to the donkey. First, the donkey's talking to Balaam. Now, Balaam's talking back because you have abused me. I wish there were a sword in my hand for now I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey? on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day. Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And, and, and he said, no. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. Now here's a second miracle. First miracle, he's speaking through a donkey. Second miracle, he's opening Balaam's eyes. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed his feet and fell flat on his face. You see, Here, God does a supernatural thing to protect his people. He sent the angel to stop Balaam, and then he opened the donkey's mouth, and then he even helps Balaam to see what's going on so that that would temper Balaam's response to the request that Balak is making. The point there is that in the wilderness seasons of life, when we need God to do something supernatural, he does. He does. He always responds to the point of our need. And another way, not only does God help us through his presence and through his provision, but God helps us through his people. As we read about these Israelites in the wilderness, how many times do we see God helping his people through his people? God is blessing the people through Moses and Aaron, and and, and God is blessing Moses through his father-in-law Jethro, and Jethro gives Moses good advice. Hey, you get other people involved to help you. You're going to burn out. God will help you uh, with his people. And it's been amazing to me through the years to see how many times when you need an encouraging word, 
that God will place somebody into your life. I think the friendship my dad has with Ray Steele has been that. I think there have been multiple times in my dad's life when Ray would have called him or they seen each other in Dallas, and he, one pastor to another, one friend to another, saying something that would encourage, that would inspire, that would uplift. We had a sermon a few weeks ago, as iron sharpens iron. Well, God uses his people to bless his people. I was thinking today in my life, I have so many illustrations I could use, but one that came to mind, this happened probably 20 years or so, maybe more than 20 years ago. If you were around at that time, you remember that Willa Dorsey came here to sing. She used to sing here randomly at different times through the years. She's gone to be with the Lord now. Willa's a wonderful Christian lady, uh, just had, had, an, had an incredible life in ministry. She sang at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Crusades multiple times. She used to sing the song, His Eye is on the Sparrow, and absolutely beautiful. You can still catch her on the radio every now and then. They'll play one of her songs. And Back in about 2002, Willa had flown to Houston from Portland, Oregon, where she lived, to sing at our church. And on the Sunday night after the service, I was introduced to her by uh, Margaret Davidson. And Margaret said, John, have you ever met Willa? And I said, I don't, I know, I haven't, but I've always wanted to. And so she introduced me to her. And, and the three of us are standing there talking. And Margaret said to me, she said, John, Willa's going to be in town. She was staying at Margaret's house. Margaret was our church organist for many, many years. And uh, she said, Willa likes fried catfish at Sudie's catfish place on Spencer Highway. And she said, I know you like that. She said, how would you like to meet me and Willa tomorrow night for dinner at Sudie's? And uh, I said, well, that sounds like a great idea to me. And so uh, I didn't even have to pray about it or check my calendar. I just accepted that. I mean, who can dinner with, with those two ladies? And so I met them up there and we just were talking and having a good time. And the meal was coming to an end. And I needed to be in Seabrook that night to make a visit of somebody who'd come to our, visit our church. And, but I didn't want to rush out on Willa and Margaret. And so we were coming to the end of the meal, and I thought we were about ready to leave. And Willa said to the waiter, she said, could I please get a to-go bag? I haven't been able to finish all my fish and, and hush puppies here. And, and uh, the waiter said, well, this is an all-you-can-eat, and so that means you can't take it with you. And so Willa looked at that food, and she, she said, well, it'd be a shame to, mess all, to leave all this food. Let's just stay here and keep eating. And so we did, and she kept eating, and we kept talking, and we're just having a good time. And I'm thinking to myself, I really need to get to Seabrook, but I don't want to leave this. This, is a, this has been an interesting conversation. Some of the things she said were interesting. And as it was getting late, and I've asked her so many questions about her life in ministry and what it was like to sing for Dr. Graham and all that. She said something to me, and that was interesting. She said, John, I never had met you before yes, last night. And she said, I've sung in this church many years ago, but it's been a while. I've never had met you, and I'm glad that you would meet with me and Margaret tonight. I said, no, this is an honor for me to have dinner with two ladies like this. And she said, uh, I just feel like God has given me a word for you. And when she said that, I said to myself, I don't even care if I make it to Seabrook. This is a woman of God. She said, I think God has given me a word for you. And she told me what precipitated this whole thing. And then she gave me the word 
And I sat there in Sudie's catfish house over 20 years ago on Spencer Highway listening to Willa Dorsey say to me what she thought was the Word of God. And I thought to myself, of all the meals I've ever had and people I've ever... I can't think of anything that was more timely and more poignant and more helpful for me than that. In fact, I developed, I, I got a picture of Willa. I put it in my office, and years later, I asked her, every time I would hear her voice on the radio singing His Eyes on the Sparrow, any other song, my mind went back to that word that she had given me at Sudie's Catfish House. And I just had such respect for her. I called her one day. I said, Willa, we refreshed on that conversation. I said, I said, I don't have any kids. I said, but if I ever got a dog, could I name that dog after you? <laughs> and she said, no, you can't. I don't want a dog named after me. And she laughed about that, but I was just trying to honor her, and she just didn't want it to be that way. But I'm saying this. One of the things that God does to us in the desert, when the devil is trying to deceive us and discourage us and destroy us, God will send a person into your life, maybe a pastor, maybe a friend, maybe a spouse, whoever, and that person will speak something into your heart and into your mind that you need in that moment. And that's God speaking to them through you. And then we'll finish these blanks here so you won't feel cheated. God will give us his perspective. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 in verse 23, it says that God brought us out Moses said, God has brought us out, out of Egypt, that he might bring us in. Listen, friend, he who begun a good work in you will complete it. And when he saved you, he brought you out of a world of lostness. But he's wanting to take you in to a land of abundance. And so in the wilderness, we have to keep moving forward and we can't give up. And then through the simplicity of his plan, I was thinking today, God, what would you say to the person out there on Wednesday night? This is our... Not a large service, but it's a good service. God, what would you say to the person on Wednesday night who is in the desert? And I felt like God said, I think this is God's word perhaps to you tonight. In fact, I know it is. God says this, trust me and keep moving forward. Trust me and keep moving forward. You know, the devil wants us to doubt God and to stop forward motion. (laughs) And that's what happened. They keep around in the circle. But trust God and keep moving forward. So what I've said so far, in the wilderness, Satan wants to destroy you. God wants to develop you. But think about this. In the wilderness, you have a decision to make. You have a decision to make. And it's what I said a moment ago. You can give up or you can look up. And the children of Israel gave up their faith, many of them, hundreds of thousands of them, and they died in the wilderness. The best advice I could give you tonight, let's look at this on the screen, and we're coming to an end. We're coming to an end. The best advice I could give you tonight, if you're in the wilderness, is this. Number one, seek God. Seek the Lord. And number two, and I'm going to show you verses for these, and then we'll be done. Number two, stay faithful where you are until and unless God moves you. Now, what, what I just said right there could be a word from God to you tonight. Remember, God spoke to Balaam through a donkey. And if he can speak through a donkey, he can speak through me. And he can speak through you. And God tonight, I believe, is saying to someone here tonight, what you need to do is seek me. And what you need to do is stay where you are until and unless 
God moves you. Now, if God moves you, go with God. If the cloud moves, go with God. Paul wrote in a, to the letter to the uh, no, to First Timothy, he's writing to Timothy, and Paul said to Timothy, "Stay in Ephesus." Paul having a hard Timothy's having a hard time in Ephesus. Paul founded that church. The apostle John pastored that church, and uh, now Timothy is pastoring that church and probably having some problems in that church. Paul said to Timothy. Stay in Ephesus, and tonight God might be saying to you, stay where you are until and unless I call you to go somewhere else. Two verses I want us to see tonight. It's interesting. The numbers from these verses are the same, 27, 8. The books are different. The first one is from Psalm 27, 8. Look what God said. Look what the psalmist said. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek has God ever come to you and said to you, seek my face? I can remember one time at a gym in Clear Lake in December of 2002, God said to me, for two years, focus on me. And I knew I had my instructions for 2003 and 2004, seek God's face. So that's a word for somebody tonight. And then in Proverbs 27, 8, like a bird that wanders from its nest is a man who wanders from his place. Now, again, if God leads you from one place to another, go with God. But a bird wandering from his nest is not being led by God. It's just wandering away. And so the word tonight is to seek God, and the word tonight is to stay where you are until and unless God moves you. Now, you still listen? Say amen. amen. As I was home today preparing this, I thought that I, my sermon might be about five or six minutes shorter than it was. And... Uh, and it was, it, it's, 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 the time is what it is. But I was thinking today, I thought, God, the wilderness, the Israelites were in it for 40 years. All of us have wilderness seasons in life. And I just thought this today. If I sit down, God, and write a poem on the wilderness, I wonder would it be any good? I wonder could you give me a, a word on the wilderness? And so I sat down and I wrote a little poem and uh, it's 7.29. The service is supposed to get over at 7.30. If you give me permission to go one minute long, say amen. amen. And uh, I, hope this, I hope this will be good. And as I read this, I want you to think about your own life, your own desert wilderness experiences, because today as I wrote it, I was thinking about mine. Here it is, the wilderness. The wilderness is a testing place where we find God's mercy and we receive his grace. The way is hard and the path unclear, but we have God's presence. He's always near. We never thought we'd be in such a spot where we get tested for everything we've got. In the wilderness season, one thing is true. We're not here forever. We're just passing through. God has a greater plan in store. He has blessings for us we've never known before. What we need right now is a heavenly view. That's what it'll take to make it through. Faith is what's needed when the night seems so long. Faith in our hearts that breaks forth in a song. And along with that faith, some determination that we'll be faithful to him in our appointed station. We'll keep our focus on the one above. He'll keep us safe in his arms of love. And we'll anticipate a better day when we reach our home across the way. A better day 
in the land of milk and honey, where the air is crisp and the skies are sunny. A better day will soon appear, but in the meantime, God's with us here. He's here with us in our testing place to show us his power and to give us his grace. He's teaching us to trust him more, to depend on him like never before. That's the real purpose of the wilderness, that we'd learn to trust more and to worry less. And if that lesson to us becomes clear, we'll one day be grateful for our experience here. The wilderness is not a wasted place. It's where we learn to trust God's heart when we can't see his face. So trust in him and don't despair. He has a plan for your life and he'll get you there. In the wilderness season, one thing is true. We're not here forever. We're just passing through. And we're not passing through alone. There's a king with us from heaven's throne. The king of heaven will never lead our, leave our side. He's our spiritual groom, and we're his bride. If he becomes real to us in our testing place, there'll come a day when we'll see his face. And on that day when we see his face, we'll thank him. For our testing place. For had we not passed through that testing place, we might never have learned to trust his grace. And without that faith down in our heart, our relationship with him could never start. So whatever it is that you're going through, trust in God is the best thing you could ever do. Amen? The wilderness is a testing place. But if in that testing place we learn to trust God, one day we'll be thankful for it. Amen? Father, I thank you that in the desert, while the devil is trying to destroy us and put us down, discourage us, deceive us, God, I thank you that you're right there trying to build us up, to develop our faith, to strengthen our character, to make us more like Jesus. And yet, God, we're reminded tonight that we have a decision to make. Will we give up or look up? Will we seek you or look in some other direction? Will we stay faithful to our assignment? Or like a bird, will we wander from our nest? God, I pray tonight for that person here who needed a word from God that this would be to them that word, that this would be for them tonight what Willa Dorsey's word was for me, a word from God. With your head bowed and eyes closed, would you say this to God? God, I'm in a testing place. I need your wisdom. I need your grace. God, help me to keep my focus on you, to stay the course, to be faithful where I am until and unless you reassign me. Now tonight, some of you may be in this testing place and you don't know the Lord. You've never been saved. 
And I can say to you tonight, one of the reasons God's allowed you to be where you are is to get your attention so that you would look up to Him and ask for forgiveness. We all need forgiveness because we've all sinned. And ask for salvation. If you don't know for sure that Jesus is living in your heart tonight, pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sins and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me and I trust you to do it. In your name I pray and all the people said, Amen.